0: Good morning, all. We're going to be reading from James 5, verses 13 through 20, to finish off the book of James. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church, and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord.
1: All right, well, today is our last Sunday in the book of James, and uh, if this is your first time here, welcome. I know we've got Lauren is getting baptized. We're really pumped about that. we got friends here. Um, We've also got a family from out of town here, really excited about. Jake told me to call you out. Sorry for embarrassing you. Um, Also, I heard somebody was having their 61st wedding anniversary today. Huh? Where? Right here. Let's go. Give it up. Give it up. Right here. That's incredible. Thank you for being here with us, encouraging all of these 20-year-olds. What can be someday? Um, Man, uh, I've loved being in James. This conclusion is going to be a little bittersweet. I say that it's going to be bittersweet because it's been sweet because the Bible is sweet and it's um, honey, and it's better than gold, and it's better than life, and I've loved studying and learning and growing from it, um, and, and, uh, and it's also been a little bit tough because it's been a really rough, rough book, um, calling out our, our faith and, and holding up the mirror to what we really look like and exposing sin in us. I was doing some premarital counseling uh, not too long ago. Um, with, I don't think I should name them. That'd probably not be nice, um, even though I just called out everyone, um, but uh, we were just like going through premarital counseling, and um, the guy's like, man, we're about ready to be done with James. <laughs> and I was like, wait, what? And I was a little offended at first, and he was like, well, you know, it's just like really hard. And I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, you're right, it is. And um, I was just thinking about it, and, and I think every week I get to the passage, and I'm like, this is the hardest one. And then the next week I get to a passage, and I'm like, nope, nope, this is the hardest one. And that's really what it's been like. Um, so today is the last day. As we clo- close it out, James is going to talk about prayer. And, and I think this is so fitting because the book starts out with James urging us to pray. And then now after this just raking over the coals, he again urges us to pray. And so the whole thing is sandwiched by prayer. Everything that he says in the letter is written in the context of prayer. And that's really important because our response to this whole book is going to be all about prayer. So important for us to grasp what it means to pray because if we want to adopt anything that we have read in this book, if we want to apply any of the commands, if we want to appropriate any of the promises, we have to understand prayer because prayer is the means through which we do all of that stuff. And so this final paragraph isn't just some kind of afterthought that he tagged on at the end. It is the application of the entire letter. And so there have been tons of applications, but if you try to do any of it apart from prayer, it's not gonna work. Faith without works is dead. We've seen that. But trying to do all of these works that we've read about without the presence of God and without the power of God is delusional. And so to wrap it all up, he's saying, listen, as you go, as you try to put all this in practice, you need to pray. This is so vital. Um, I was thinking about the importance of prayer and I was thinking about the Christian life and trying to, to put this book into practice and I was thinking about a fish and I was thinking about if you drained all the water out of the pond and then you threw the fish in there and said, hey, go swim, have a good time. That would be like uh, James asking us to put into practice everything that he's told us because it doesn't work. If you take faith out of the Christian life, you no longer have the Christian life. How many of you guys struggled with prayer this past week? Yeah, so it's, it's, it's a struggle, right? Um, and, and yet, if we're going to thrive, if we're going to flourish, if we're actually going to do what God has called us to do and experience and enjoy life the way he designed it to be lived, prayer is the sea. It is the, I guess there isn't seawater in a pond, it is the water in the pond. Faith without works is dead. Works without prayer is delusional. That's what we're going to see today. So my prayer as we close out this book is that our hearts would be stirred up to pray. I mean, that's it. That's that's how we're going to leave this place. Um, That it wouldn't just be an afterthought in our lives, but that it would be the very thing that animates our lives. Um, And that the result of prayer might be that we would understand a little bit deeper what it means to experience and enjoy life in Jesus. That's what it's all about. Now, I have worked so hard this past week To Whittle this thing down. I started out with five points, and I took one out, and then I took another one out, and I've gotten down to three points, and I have gotten it as tight as possible. We're still going to be here for an hour. Um, (laughs) Let me just say at the outset that um, this will whet your appetite. This will raise questions. I'm going to do my best to answer as many of them as I can, but I'm not going to be able to, so I want to do two things before we get into this text. First of all, this book is called Prayer. It's written by Tim Keller. We have six more copies in the Book Nook. The first six of you get this book. It, it's gonna go a lot deeper than what I can do in an hour. Also on that app that Caleb just built, can you give it up for Caleb for building that app? Um, we have tons of resources that will help you go deeper in prayer. Um, so I'm gonna scratch the surface, I'm gonna raise some questions, I'm gonna wet your appetite. I'm going to go to lunch. So if you have more, or if you just want to get lunch with me later, we'll talk, okay? Okay. Three things I want to show you. Three core truths about prayer that if we believe will transform every aspect of our lives. Three core truths about prayer that if we believe will transform every aspect of our lives. First, prayer should be Constant. Look back at verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone sick? Let him call the elders of the church and let them pray. As Corey ten Boom once put it, if, is prayer your steering wheel or is prayer your spare tire? If prayer is your steering wheel, then it won't matter what your day looks like It won't matter what the people around you act like. It won't matter what the news sounds like. It won't matter what your circumstances feel like. It won't matter what your mood is like. You'll be in prayer. You cannot drive without a steering wheel. And so if prayer is your steering wheel, you'll be praying, is anyone suffering? Is anyone suffering right now? You don't have to raise your hand. Of course, let them pray. Is anyone cheerful right now? Awesome. Praise God. Literally. Praise him. Is anyone sick? Let him pray. Verse 16. Has anyone sinned? Anyone sinned this past week? Let him pray. Ephesians 6.18. Pray at all times in the spirit. Colossians 4.2. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. 1 Thessalonians 5, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances. Prayer should be constant in our lives. Faith without works is dead, works without prayer is delusional. This is the message of the New Testament. Now, why is this so important, you might ask? I read some data this past week from the National Science Foundation. It was so fascinating to me. The average person. Thinks 12,000 to 60,000 thoughts a day. 12,000 to 60,000 thoughts a day. And this is where it gets a little depressing. 85% of those thoughts are negative. 95% of those thoughts are related to the previous day. And they're just the thoughts from that day that carry over to this day. So, in other words, When we wake up, we don't have to tell our minds to start thinking. We just start thinking. The thoughts pop into our head and we just go throughout our day. It's pretty cool. The problem, though, is that most of these thoughts aren't great. And so how do you wake up usually? Usually, for me, it's begrudgingly. I love my bed. I love my pillow. I love my comforter. I wake up with not enough sleep in the night, not enough motivation for the day, not enough excitement to look forward to. And that motivates us, right? Like something to grab a hold of at the end of the day or whatever, oh, I get to look forward to that. Not enough money in the bank, not enough fulfillment at work, not enough muscle, at least for me on my body, not, definitely not enough hair on my head. And, and all of these thoughts are just like going through. You know, I just wake up in the morning and I don't have to tell my, myself to think these thoughts, I just think these thoughts, they're there. 12,000 to 60,000 of these. And so we drag ourselves through our morning routine. And we make the coffee, and we read the news, and we scroll through the timeline, and man, if we're lucky, we'll read the Bible for five minutes, and we're reminded again that everything is just as messed up today as it was the day before. It's not getting any better. Negative thought after negative thought after negative thought after negative thought. This is why one of my favorite bands said it's a dangerous business walking out of your front door, because it it only gets worse. You haven't even stepped out. Let me ask you something. Can you imagine with me just for one second what it would look like in your life if you woke up every morning and you turned 12 to 60,000 literal thoughts into prayers? What, what would change in your life? What would change, change about your attitude? What would change about your affections? What would change about your perspective? What would change about your contentment? What would change about your peace? What would change about your happiness? If you're starting the day by taking God at his word, if you're starting the day by believing that he's actually there with you, if you're starting the day by believing that he cares about you, that he cares for you, that he loves you, that he has a plan for your life, you start taking 12 to 60,000 thoughts captive and you turn them into prayers, how much would your outlook on life be transformed? Oh, infinitely. Guys, I know I say this a lot, but it's true, and and so you need to hear it again, because I know many of you don't believe me, and sometimes I don't believe myself, so I have to tell it to myself over and over again. Every single command in the entire Bible is an invitation to joy, and so if you obey it, it will lead you into your deepest happiness. So we we have this rebellious tendency to look at a command in the Bible that says pray without ceasing. We're like, that's so legalistic, God. Like, why would you do that? That's just another thing I got to add to my my list. Another thing I've got to add to my calendar, another burden, another thing I'm not going to measure up to. God just wants to give me more rules. Pray without ceasing. Well, that's impossible. And that's what our rebel hearts think. But the Bible is not written like that. If there is a command in the Bible, it is meant to lead you into your deepest happiness. And so if God is saying, pray without ceasing, he knows something about your happiness that you don't know. He knows something about life that you haven't tapped into yet because you haven't invited him in to every second of it. What if you turned twelve to 60,000 of your thoughts into prayers? What would that look like for your life? It would lead to your deepest happiness. Pray without ceasing. It's not an afterthought. It's what animates our life. Man, I, I was reading an article in the New York Times several years ago where the author was talking about how her Christian friends experienced the world and how she wished that she had some of what they had. Look at how she put it. She said, my friends and relatives who rely on God, and she said, the real believers, not just the churchgoers, because there's a big difference, have an expansiveness of spirit. When they walk along a stream, they don't just see water falling over rocks. The sight fills them with ecstasy. They see a realm of hope beyond this world. I just see a bubbling brook. I don't get the message. Guys, that is the point of constant prayer. It's meant to take the mundane aspects of life and turn them into magic. We live in an enchanted world, but we don't experience it like that until we bring God into it. And so we, the secular world's disenchanted. The secular world is, it's all materialism. It's all physical. It's, you die and it's dirt and worms. There's no purpose. There's no meta narrative story driving this whole thing. There's no God who cares at all. It's survival of the fittest. If you're strong, that's great. And nature's red in tooth and claw, so just go out and kill everyone, right? That is not a fun way. That's a disenchanted way to live your life. And God comes along, he's like, why are you still living like that? I've already, I've rescued you out of that. Life is magic. Life is enchanted. There's nothing mundane. That's why 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, whether you eat or whether you drink, no matter how small it is or mundane it is or boring it is or insignificant it might be, do it all to the glory of God. How can you do that if it's not enchanted? It is. There is nothing mundane about this world that God has created. That's how we're supposed to live our lives. The moment your alarm goes off, all of a sudden, if you believe that, if you start trying to appropriate that, you sit up in your bed and you turn that first thought into a prayer and you say, it's a new day. I'm a new creation. I got new mercy. I got new grace. Man, I got a new opportunity to walk with you. I got new adventures. There's magic waiting for me today. And you take that first thought captive and it's not begrudging anymore. The pillow's great, but it's not as great as what's ahead. I've got the spirit of God living inside of me. And then you, and then you pray, and you start taking the thoughts captive and you, and you turn them into prayers. And you're like, spirit, I want you to use me today. I want you to control me today. I want you to guide me today. I want you to, 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 to work through me as a vessel today. I'm yours, your are mine, have your way in me. And that's the first thought of your day. And then you get up and you go brush your teeth and all of a sudden you're brushing your teeth to the glory of God. And you're like, oh man, he's with me. And I'm with him, and he's mine, and I'm his, and you're brushing your teeth. And I'm like, that's a reward in heaven somehow. Like, this is amazing. And then you're, like, doing your hair if you have it, and you're like, I'm doing this for the glory of God. <laughs> Some of you just need to buzz it off. It's so freeing. It's amazing. <laughs> oh, you don't even know. I didn't know until I lost it. Oh man, you start thinking about what what happened the day before, and you start thinking about your schedule, what's coming up at work, and what's going on in your life, but now all of a sudden, you're turning those thoughts into prayer, and all of a sudden, there's nothing mundane, and you go and you make some coffee, and you open up that bag of coffee, and you start wafting that smell, and you're like, holy cow, God, you are incredible. (laughs) Like, how did you make, how did you come up with this? This is incredible. Like you could have just made us to where we ate for no pleasure. It was all utility. Like we could have had a little like hose in our bellies and we just like sucked it all in like that. But he gave us taste buds because he wants our pleasure, and he made coffee and I don't know if you like tea, whatever. That's you. You do you. what you, oh, and, and so you open it and you waft and you're like oh you're so good now you're drinking coffee to the glory of God and then you go to the table and you eat your cereal and it's still pleasure what if you eat breakfast and, and, and you're reading the news again and you're scrolling through the news feed only now you're taking those thoughts captive and you're turning them into prayers and you realize he's sovereign he's in control and he's got a plan for all of this stuff God just help me play a part now you're doing everything to the glory of God there is nothing mundane about any of it it's all magic the reason we love entertainment, the reason we binge on video games and Netflix, and the reason Santa Claus is all about Christmas, I'm sorry if you got kids in here, is because we want magic in our lives and we don't think there's any magic in our lives. And guys, our lives are full of magic. But only if we are in constant prayer. Santa's awesome, by the way. Totally real. Um. I do this every time. I don't know why I keep doing this. (laughs) Guys, listen to this. If you can go through your day without constant communion with God, you're missing out. It's not a burdensome command. It's an invitation to your deepest happiness. So the first thing we need to see is that prayer should be constant. Second, this is gonna be fun. And this is what you're waiting for. You're like, move on. like Get to the oil and the healing. Prayer should be convinced. Let me just tell you, I I never studied this passage before. This blew my mind. None of you have ever heard this before. Buckle up. Verse 14. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call the elders of the church. Let them pray over him anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord, and the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. Now, you've heard that verse before. Like Johnny Eric and when she first got injured, I mentioned her last week, she's the one who dove into the pond, and then she, um, she I think she broke her neck and ended up being paralyzed from the neck down, and um, she read this passage and she was absolutely convinced by reading this passage that God was going to do a miracle in her life, that he was going to heal her spine, that he was going to enable her to walk again. And so she got the elders of the church and she got her friends and her family and they got the oil and they had a private healing service. And the week before they had this service, she, she was up in front of her church and she said, listen, don't be surprised when you see me standing in front of you soon because God is going to heal me. Because of this passage, she read this passage, she believed that that's what it says, because that's what it sounds like it says, and so they had this private prayer gathering, and nothing happened. Elizabeth Elliott told a similar story in her biography of Amy Carmichael, who is just an incredible missionary to India. One of Amy's closest friends, co-missionaries, got cancer. They called the elders, they got the oil, they said the prayers, they laid on the hands, and again, nothing happened. In fact, she got worse. She died. The Apostle Paul has a similar story in which he had a thorn in his flesh that was driving him mad, and we don't know exactly what this thorn was. Uh, many scholars believe it was physical, some believe it was eyesight. We don't really know, but he called it a messenger of Satan. And he said he pleaded with God three times to have it removed, and God didn't remove it. 2 Timothy 4, he says he left his companion Trophimus at Miletus sick which is another way of saying he tried to heal him, but he couldn't do it. So he left him there sick. So, what exactly are we supposed to be convinced of when we pray if the formula doesn't always work? What's the deal with calling the elders? Also, what's so special about oil? Now, 1 Peter 2 says that union with Christ makes every single one of you a priest to God, which means you don't need an elder to pray for you anymore. Um, Romans 8 says that you have the power of the Spirit, which gives you access to the throne room of God, which means you don't need oil for God to listen to you anymore. So what in the world is going on with elders in oil? We don't need a priest, we don't need a pastor, we don't need a pope, we don't need a rosary, we don't need a rabbit's foot, we don't need a four-leaf clover, we don't need a flask, what in the world is going on in James chapter 5? Now, there are a couple of things that we have to do, and it's a lot of work, man. Oh, goodness, it's a lot of work because there's a lot of different stuff out there. So much stuff to study this past week. It was actually really fun, though. I, I really enjoyed it. First time I've ever studied this passage. A couple of things that we have to do if we want to make sense of this text and really get to the meaning behind it. The first thing we have to do is we have to start with the promise Because if we don't start with the promise, we're going to mess it up. So we start with the promise, and then we're going to work our way backwards from there. So look back at verse 15. This is the promise. The prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. That's a promise. The outcome of the elders and the oil and the prayer of faith will always be healing, period. So when I say our prayer should be convinced, I'm not talking about being convinced in the sovereignty of God. I'm not talking about being convinced in the power of God. I'm not talking about being convinced in the ability of God. I'm talking about being convinced of the outcome of our prayer. We should be convinced, the text says, that the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. Now, this is really significant because if that's true, then any attempt to try to find a loophole or give God a way out or explain away a negative outcome is either a misunderstanding of the promise or it is disbelief in the promise. Those are the only two options. We have either misunderstood the promise or we don't believe it. So in other words, Johnny Erickson Tata, Amy Carmichael, countless others who have tried this formula and failed, either misunderstood the promise or they just didn't have enough faith. Those are the only two options. So, which one is it? I'll be honest with you, I used to believe it was option two. I used to believe that the reason God wasn't answering my prayers to heal my dad, who has a chronic illness, the reason that he wasn't answering my prayers to, to heal my grandma, who had countless chronic illness and suffered to her death, the reason he wasn't answering my prayers to, to heal my friends was because there was something wrong with me. That's what Johnny Erickson Tata thought. The reason that she was thrust into a deep depression wasn't just because she was paralyzed, but was because she believed that God was going to heal her, and then God didn't heal her. I was so disillusioned in prayer. Johnny was so disillusioned in prayer. I'll be honest with you. The reason I became disillusioned in prayer is because I know there's always going to be something wrong with me. As long as I've got this flesh warring inside of me, there's always going to be a mixture of my sin and his righteousness. Always. As long as i got this flesh inside of me, I'm going to have daily reminders of my deviation and Christ's dedication. If you say anything other than that, guys, look in the mirror, James would say. I will always be the disciple who cries out, Lord, I believe but help me in my unbelief. And so if God's promise to answer my prayers for healing hinge on my faith and my righteousness and my confidence and my goodness, I've got no hope and neither do you. So why pray at all? This is I'm, I'm just answering my, I'm, I'm telling you my thought process, okay? This is what I used to think. I can't tell you how much it breaks my heart that the majority of the people I've talked to over the years think the same exact thing as that. Somebody told them that the reason God didn't answer their pro- his, this promise in their lives is because they didn't have enough faith. That's spiritual abuse. And, and other people have, have taken this and they've said, listen, your faith is demonstrated by giving money. And you're going to show your faith by giving money and then you'll get healed. That's spiritual abuse. They're going to give an account for this one day. A couple years ago we saw this, people praying for their dead child to be raised, didn't happen, didn't have enough faith. Compounds the pain, doesn't it? Either God's a liar or they're not good enough. And so this passage is supposed to be driving us to prayer, but in reality it. it disillusions us in prayer this is how I felt that's option two I've got good news for you today though option two is not the right option our conviction in prayer has nothing to do with us has everything to do with God so what is going on with this formula because there's a promise he will do it God's not a liar he never goes back on a promise there's a certain outcome that we should expect every single time if we follow these steps, if we pray this prayer, so if it's not option two, how have we misunderstood this? I think the main reason, there are a couple of things, the main reason I misunderstood this promise for so long, the main reason that so many others have done the same thing is that our English translation of the word sick hides the original meaning. And this is incredibly frustrating. As I was studying this past week, I was actually ticked off, because this has led so many people away, not just from praying, but from God, from being disillusioned. There are actually two different words for sick in this promise, one's in 14 and one's in 15. The word in verse 14 is athseneo. Say athseneo. Thanks. You don't, now you know how hard it is, okay? Okay. Um, Now, this word is is a word for general sickness, and it's used of all kinds of different ailments. It's used of all kinds of general weaknesses. For example, in Matthew 10, 8, it's used to talk about sickness in general. In John 5, 3, it's used to describe all of the people who had gathered at that pool. You remember the pool of Bethesda? The paralyzed and the crippled. It's used used to talk about an immature believer or a weak believer. In 1 Corinthians 8, 9, it's used in the same way, and Paul talks about a weak believer falling into sin because of a stronger believer. And then in Romans 5, 6, look at this. While we were still sick, while we were still helpless, while we were still astheneo, Christ died for the ungodly. And so it's a general word. It's a, it means helpless, it means weak, it means weary, it means sick, and that creates a big problem, because now the big question is like, well, how are we supposed to interpret this if it could mean paralytics at a pool or sinners in need of a Savior or someone who's just weak in their faith? How are we supposed to know which one he's talking about? That's the question that's raised. You see that question, right? Nod with me if you see that question. Okay, I got great news for you. James clarifies it with the second word for sick because the second word for sick is not general. It's specific, and it sheds light on the first word, and this word is chemno. Say Cam no. Camno Cam, no. never has anything to do with physical sickness. Ever. It's used two other times in the New Testament. Hebrews 12, Romans 2. Both times are about not growing weary and following Christ. Not growing weary and fighting sin. Look at them with me. Hebrews 12, 3. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary, so that you may not grow sick or faint-hearted. Revelation 2.4, I know that you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake, and you have not grown weary. This word sick is never used to talk about our bodies, it's always used to talk about our hearts. And so the first word for sick could be used to talk about physical sickness or spiritual sickness, but James doesn't leave any room for doubt because he clarifies it with this second word. So the first thing we need to do in order to understand the promise is understand the language that's being used. The second thing we need to do is just as important, and yet I think it's more often than not completely ignored when we approach James chapter 5. And honestly, what I'm about to tell you is the main reason we misunderstand all of Scripture, and that's the fact that we take it out of its context. What is the context of the book of James? Faith. Faith without works is dead. You need to be growing in your faith. You need to be demonstrating your faith. You need to be enduring in your faith. You need to be patient in your faith. That's the context of the book of James. What's the immediate context of this formula? Faith. The immediate context is actually sin and forgiveness. Look back at 15. The prayer of faith will save the one who is weary, and the Lord will raise him up. If any of you have committed sins, he'll be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins. Okay, so now, if you take the context of the book, let me ask you something. Have any of you felt weary as we've gone through this letter? Yes. Have any of you felt weak as James has held the mirror up to the state of your faith? Yes. Have any of you been confronted with sin in your life that you were blind to or ignorant of as a result of reading this book? Yes, absolutely. That's the whole point of the letter. Guys, listen, James is not suffering from ADD. He's not spending five chapters talking about growing in faith and enduring in faith and exposing sin and being patient in faith and all of a sudden giving a random formula for how to heal people. He's giving us the response for everything that he has just told us. If you feel weary as a result of this letter, pray and you will be raised up. You see? It's context. When we take passages out of its context, we always misunderstand them. Guys, if any of you feel weary, pray. If any of you feel sick or beat up, or discouraged because of how much has been exposed to you in this mirror, pray. You don't have to wallow in the state of your weakened faith. Call the elders, confess your sin, don't keep it in the dark. If the Spirit has exposed something in you, expose it to others so that you can be healed. Verse 19 makes it even clearer. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Guys, listen, the promise that James wants you and me to be convinced of as we pray is that when we sin, God always forgives, every single time. When we fall, God always raises us back up. When we grow weary and are doing good, God always gives us strength. When we are weak and ready to give up, God always holds us fast and helps us endure. That is the promise. You can stake your life on it. And so this passage is not supposed to make us disillusioned in prayer. It's meant to drive us to prayer. Oh, we're always weak. We're going to see in a minute that that's actually a good thing. This is the promise. We don't have to stir up faith before we talk to God so that he'll answer us. We go in weak, we go in weary, and then he stirs up our faith as we talk to him. And we leave empowered and ready for his mission. You've never heard this before in your life, have you? Neither have I. If we misunderstand this promise, we'll be disillusioned in prayer, but if we get it, we'll be driven to prayer. Okay, now where does the oil come into play? What is the deal with oil this gives us even more context and even more proof that what James is talking about is spiritual and not physical, because an oil in the Jewish context was intensely symbolic, it was always used to demonstrate that a person or a place or a thing was being consecrated to God, was being set apart for God, or was being dedicated to God. It goes all the way back to the tabernacle, it goes all the way back to Exodus, where the priests were anointed, and the tent was anointed, and the utensils were anointed, and the altar was anointed, and it was a sign that all of these things are now dedicated to God. Look at this with me. Exodus 30. The Lord said to Moses, take the finest spices of liquid myrrh and 500 shekels, and sweet smelling cinnamon, half as much, that is 250, and 250 of aromatic cane, and 500 of cassia, and according to a shekel of the sanctuary, and a a hen of olive oil. You will make of these a sacred anointing oil, blended as by the perfumer, and it will be a holy anointing oil. With it, you will anoint the tent of meeting, and the ark of the testimony, and the table and all of its utensils, and the lampstand and its utensils, and the altar of incense, and the altar of burnt offering with all of its utensils, and the basin and its stand. And listen, this is it, verse 29, you will consecrate them. That they may be most holy. Whatever touches them will become holy. Later on, this special anointing was used for men who would rule over God's people as king. They would be anointed with oil to demonstrate that they were being set apart for God, they belonged to Him, their lives were dedicated to Him. We see examples of this over and over again in the Old Testament. So guys, listen, for us, 21st century America, oil has no symbolic meaning. I use oil to cook my vegetables, it's great. <laughs> um, but for the Jews, it was intensely symbolic. If you've wandered, James, says, it, it, James is saying... If you've been living in a lifestyle of sin, if you have removed yourself from God and you've been chasing after the world and, and now it's been exposed that, hey, you actually need to come back from your wandering, you need to be rededicated to God, you need to be reconsecrated to God, here's a symbol, you'll understand this. Guys, there's a lot of debate about what this oil means, but it has to be taken in context. And so some people take it from the Greek context, and the Greek context is that the Greeks viewed oil as medicine. But remember, James is not writing to Greeks. At the very beginning of the letter, he says to what? To the 12 tribes of the dispersion. He's writing to Jewish Christians, and they still had all of this Old Testament. They still had all of this old symbolism, and so it's talking about consecration. Now listen, if you disagree, that's, that's okay. Like, I'm convinced. It's okay if you're not. There are many brilliant men who disagree with me. Many men who love God who disagree with me. What I would say is that there's nothing magical or mystical about the oil. It's a symbol of rededication and renewed fellowship. Guys, if prayer depends on our strength, it will be useless. We're not strong. But the good news is that God's power isn't revealed in our strength. It's revealed in our weakness and you and I need to be convinced of that so when we go to the Lord in prayer we go in weak and weary we go in desperate in need of his mercy in need of his power in need of his grace in need of his wisdom in need of his loyal love and James says here's the promise when you pray that is all you will ever find so prayer should first be constant then it should be convinced. Finally, the reason that it can be constant and can be convinced is because prayer is causative. Before you get worried that James doesn't think that God can still heal people, before you get worried that James doesn't believe in the miraculous, that James doesn't want us to pray prayers of faith and prayers of healing and prayers of miracles and all this kind of stuff, just look at verse 16. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three and a half years it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. In other words, guys, Elijah was a man with a nature just like ours. He wasn't special. He wasn't unique. He wasn't divine. He was only a human, and yet Elijah was righteous. That means that he walked with God. He wasn't a superhero. He just loved Jesus. And that is all that God is looking for. Faith as a mustard seed is all he needs. He does not need you to be the apostle Paul. He needs you to be you and just in your weakness and your belief, saying, I want to walk with you, God. I want to love you. I want to serve you. And this is all I've got. He's like, that's all I need. Let me show you what I can do with that. And so Elijah prays earnestly and he prays passionately and he prays boldly and God answers that prayer. And the point is that God always works through his people like that. His power is unleashed. His wisdom is revealed. His provision is released. His plan is carried out through your prayers and through my prayers. So if you want to experience the power of God, if you want to grasp his wisdom, if you want to enjoy his presence, if you want to be sustained by his provision, if you want to carry out his plan in your life and in the world, you have to find yourself on your knees in bold and earnest and passionate prayer. James 4.2 says this, look back at it with me, you do not have because you do not ask. Wait, what? All the reformed, like, alarm bells are going off right now. Like, wait, hold on a second. Like, the sovereignty of God. He's saying prayer's causative. You do not have because you didn't ask for it. He didn't say you do not have because God ordained that you would not have before the foundations of the world were ever laid. He did not say you do not have because God only answered the prayers back in those days of the prophets and the superhumans, like Elijah, like Elijah, He said, you do not have because you just keep forgetting to pray. It's causative. It changes things. Human history is carried along on the prayers of the people of God. This is how God has hardwired the world. He has ordained in his sovereign wisdom that history will be impacted by your prayers. It changes things it releases things, it reveals things, it binds things, Jesus says, it causes things. Things that would not happen if you did not pray. I remember the first time I was 16, brand new convert, so rough, so raw, just uh, around the edges, and I I had a twin brother, he was Mr. Youth Group, and he's like preaching in youth group, and he was so annoying. Um, he always winning the Christian awards, like Best Christian awards. You know who invented that stuff? Um, so I get saved, and and our youth group was taken a mission trip to New York, and it was just going to be evangelism this whole time. and And I've I've shared the story before, but we got a new church, and it's like a new church from like two years ago. So I'll just tell it again. If you've heard it, I apologize. Um, but this is impact, impactful for me, it's important for me because I was 16 and I was brand new and I was comparing myself to all the other good Christians like my twin. And, um, so every night we de- de- debrief about how it went. Like we would go to park after park after park and we would just share the gospel with people and um, I couldn't even get someone to have a conversation with me. And, and my brother's leading people to Christ, and this guy named Chris, who's also like Mr. Youth Group, he's leading people to Christ, and everyone's like, you know, cheering for him at our debrief, and I'm just sitting there like, man, I'm nothing, like, I, God will never use me, you know, I, I'm raw, and I get emotional every time I think about it, but <clears throat> sorry, um, and, and it was, it was tough, because I wanted to be used by God, and, and I wanted to, to be in ministry, and I wanted to, you know, see him work through me, and I was like, well, I guess he can't, and um. last day last park Uh, afterwards we were gonna go and get on a plane and go back home um still hadn't had a conversation with anyone by the way Uh, I'm not a gifted evangelist okay um that gifting has grown over the years now I share the gospel with everyone Uh, and and it's a lot of fun and God had to flip that switch in my mind to show me that it was for my good it wasn't a burden it's not legalism um but I didn't start out this way. And so I remember I was looking over the Hudson Bay, and I was just praying. I was crying out to God. I'm like, listen, I, 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 I want you to be there. You know? like i have given you my life. I believe. Um, but I was like, if you're there, like, and if you can hear me, I just want to see someone get saved. I just want to see someone, you know? And so I'm praying this, and... um. And nothing happens. So the the day's over and we go back to the entrance of the park and we're waiting for all the teams of like three to come. And um, all of a sudden I'm like, man, I got to go to the bathroom. And uh, we were still waiting for some teams to show up. So I was like, hey, can I go to the bathroom? And my leader was like, yeah, I'll take you. So we get to the bathroom and one of the things about New York City that I was really excited about, this is actually the main reason I wanted to go, was because you could get fake Oakley's for two dollars and um when I was in high school that was everything Oakley's were life and um and I, I I wanted to go on this trip so that I could get 10 pairs of Folklies is what we called them and um and and I I'm going to this bathroom and on on the stoop of the bathroom are not fake Oakley's but real Oakley's and they're like the the gold wired frame so they're the, the more expensive ones, they're the classy ones and I was like I'll be a classy Oakley guy and it's gonna be awesome and And I picked them up and and I took them to my leader. I'm like, look what I found. And I'm like, isn't this incredible? They're real. Like these are the real Oakleys. And and I'm like, what? You know. And then he looks at me. He's like, what do you think you should do with them? I was like, what do you mean? I'm keeping these things. These are mine. Finders keepers, you know. And he's like, nah. I I I really think we should like give them to the security guard. I was so mad. I was like, are you kidding me? I didn't get anyone saved. At least I can get some sunglasses out of this trip, you know. And. He's like, no, let's go. Let's take it to the, there's a cop right there. Let's take it to that cop. And I was like, man, I'm so mad. Uh, and so we're, we're t- we take the sunglasses over to the cop, and the cop's like, hey, uh, this is kind of strange. Like, why are you giving these back? And my leader's like, oh, we're Christians. We're actually here on a trip, and we're telling people about Jesus. And I'm still mad. I'm not paying attention. Uh, and I'm like just, you know, sulking a little bit. And all of a sudden, like out of the corner of my ear, if that's a thing, I realize that my leader is sharing the gospel with him. And, and I'm like, oh, no way, this is cool. The guy's actually listening. This is the first conversation I've been a part of all week. I'm not even talking, but I'm a part of it. You know? <laughs> and, uh, and he's walking them through the cheesiest track in the world. I mean, this thing was written in the 80s. It was like a cartoon of some guy going to heaven and uh, so cheesy. And the cop's like, oh, my gosh, like engaged. And, and I'm like, no one's ever done this. And at the end of it, my leader's like, "Do you want to give your life to Christ?" And he takes him through. He's like, "Yeah, I do." I was like, "Holy cow!" That was the first time in my life I saw that prayer did something. That something changed about that day. That there was somebody in the kingdom of God that would not have been there if I had not have prayed. John Christostom said it like this. The potency of prayer has subdued the strength of fire. It has bridled the rage of lions, hushed anarchy to rest, extinguished wars, appeased the elements, expelled demons, burst the chains of death, expanded the fates of heaven, assuaged diseases, dispelled frauds, Rescued cities from destruction, stayed sin in its course, and arrested the progress of the thunderbolt. There is, in prayer, an all-sufficient panoply, a treasure undiminished, a mine which is never exhausted, a sky unobscured by clouds, a heaven unruffled by the storm. It is the root, the fountain, the mother of a thousand blessings." changes things. Hudson Taylor is one of my heroes. I'll close with this, kind of. Um, I mentioned him a lot in the past. He, his life is full of stories like Elijah. One of my favorite stories is when he's on his way to China for the first time. and uh, He almost died like five times on this trip. Uh, crazy trip. Read his biography. It's incredible. Uh, he's only 21. Anybody 21 in this room right now? We got one, two, three, all right, you're Hudson Taylor right now. Okay? Just imagine you. You are on your way to China to be a missionary in a country that has had no missionaries. This is you right now. You're on a boat, you're sailing treacherous sea. You almost die like five different times. And one of the times is you're on the coast of the Isle of uh, Papua New Guinea and the wind just stops. It dies. And, and you realize that you're in a current, and it's a four-knot current, and it is driving you into a reef, and all of the cannibals on the island are watching you, and they're lighting fires, and they're dancing and shouting for glee because it is Christmas come early. They realize they're about to eat, and you are their feast, and there's nothing you can do about it. And so Hudson Taylor goes to the captain, and he's like, what can we do? And the captain's like, we've done everything. It's over. This is the end. And Hudson Taylor was like, listen, there's one thing we haven't done. You see, I'm a Christian, and there are three other Christians on this boat as well, and we haven't prayed yet. He's like, we're all going to go down to our cabins, and we're going to pray in agreement, and we're going to ask God for the wind, and we're going to see what he does. And so he goes down uh, into the the cabin, and so do his friends, and he starts praying. And um, as he starts praying, God reminds him of this passage in Psalm 50, Psalm fifty fifteen, and it says, and call upon me in the day of trouble and I will deliver you and you will glorify me. And so God brings this passage to his head and he just starts praying this passage back to God. He says, God, God I'm begging you to fulfill that promise on our behalf. I'm begging you to send the wind and to save us from destruction. But then he said, nevertheless, Father, I submit myself to your perfect will, whatever that may be. Now, we need to pivot here for one second and I'm gonna finish the story and we're gonna close. Hang with me, this is really important. That is actually what it means to pray in Jesus' name. That's what it means. Praying in Jesus' name is not saying a magic word. There is a name that he has been given that's above all names, we don't know what that name is. Jesus is a a name just like Joshua. I mean, there's like guys on Arsenal named Jesus. Like, you, you can say Jesus all you want. There's no magic in that name. Praying in the name of Jesus is not about uttering a magic word. It's about praying in his will, in his power, for his glory, for his fame. That's what praying in the name of Jesus is. In other words, praying in the name of Jesus is dependent, it is not demanding. Praying in the name of Jesus is expectant, and it is obedient. Praying in the name of Jesus is crying out to God for him to take away the thorn in your flesh, and then trusting in his wisdom and resting in his power, even if he doesn't. That's what praying in the name of Jesus looks like. Take Paul as an example, 2 Corinthians 12. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that he should take away the thorn. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly in my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. The power of Christ is what he wanted. It's what he needed. And that came through healing or not. The important thing was the power of Christ. And so he said, for the sake of Christ, for the name of Christ, for the fame of Christ, for the glory of Christ, then I'm content with my weakness. I'm content with insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then he's glorified in me, and he's seen as strong. That's what it looks like to pray in the name of Jesus. Guys, it is okay to pray for healing. 100%, it is okay to pray that God will take the cup of suffering from you. Paul prayed for healing. Jesus prayed for the suffering to be taken from him. It's okay. And sometimes he answers yes. Sometimes he answers no, like in the case of Paul and in the case of Christ. But whatever his answer is, if you're praying in his name, you will experience his power and you will experience his presence in your life. It's expectant and it's obedient. Okay, now back to the story. So Hudson Taylor prays in the name of Jesus. He's expectant and he's obedient. He's submissive. He's convinced at the same time though that God has granted his request. And so he, he runs back up to the deck and he goes to the first mate and he's like, listen, raise the sail. God's sending a wind. And the guy's like cursing at him and he's laughing at him. He's like, what are you talking about? There's no wind in sight. And, and Taylor's like arguing with him like, no, raise the sail right now. It's coming. I promise you. And And he's not doing anything. He's just sitting, laughing, cursing. And then all of a sudden, guess what happens? The wind. (laughs) It shows up. And Taylor's like, see? I told you. And so they raise that sail. And in a matter of minutes, they are back on course. As the old hymn goes, got any rivers that you think are uncrossable? Got any mountains that you can't tunnel through? God specializes in things thought impossible. And he can do what no other power can do. Sometimes that's in deliverance and sometimes it's not. But he's always carrying out his purpose in the world. Guys, prayer actually works. It didn't just work for Taylor. It didn't just work for Elijah. It didn't just work for the Apostle Paul. They were not any different from you, and they weren't any different from me. And so the question that you and I need to ask right now is not, where's the God of Elijah? As Leonard Ravenhill once said, the question we need to ask is, where are the Elijahs of God? Where are the people who will fall on our knees every single day and cry out to God? to work a miracle so that the nation can be saved, so that the city can be saved, so that our neighborhood can be saved, so that our family can be saved. Remember James' nickname. He was, he was camel knees because his knees were so callous from all the prayer. Where are the Elijahs of God who will be so busy in prayer that our bodies start to wear the marks and so does our community? Listen to this from James Gilmore. Cannot the same wonders be done now as of old? Can't they? Is causative? Yes, it is. You have not because you ask not. Do not the eyes of the Lord still run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of those who put their trust in him? Oh, that God would give me more practical faith in him. Where is now the Lord God of Elijah? He is waiting for Elijah to call on him. So who will be an Elijah? Will we be a church full of Elijahs? I promise you if we, if we are, Charlotte's going to change. It's going to change because prayer does things. It causes things. It releases things. It binds things. Will you and I be like Elijah? Will we walk with God? Will we live with God? Will we commune with God? Will we rely on God? Will we be the vessels through which he works in the world? Prayer is where his power is experienced prayer is where his presence is enjoyed, and that is what life is all about. Don't settle for anything less than that. Amen?